Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I'm based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Glenn Hines, over in Derry, Northern Ireland. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Seb. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone, indeed. Uh, so before we uh, we discuss today's episode or today's uh, interview that we did, uh, orient everyone to social media and ways to contact us, Glenn. Of course. Thanks, Seb. So on Twitter, it's Change Talking. On Facebook, it's Talking to Change. On Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. And for questions or reflections or information on training that you want, email is podcast at glennhangs.com. Great. Thank you, Glenn. So today we had a really interesting conversation with Donald Forrester, who is a uh, professor at Cardiff University. He and his colleagues have recently written a book about motivational interviewing in the context of uh, working with children and families. And and so we got to, to think about am I in, in some really difficult situations. And Glenn, just wondering what, what some of the takeaways you had from our conversation that we just finished up. Yeah, it's, first of all, it's just to acknowledge that this was a really important episode, I think, because an awful lot of us were recognized that, you know, there's there's a, this idea of motivation event can go so far. And what was wonderful about the conversation with Donald was he was saying, look, in my experience, it's if if we think it can only go for, so far, there's, there's situations we won't take it into. And what his research and practice is, is saying, look, it can go into the white heat of family support services or you know, child protection services. And so throughout it, it was clear it was his dedication to being supportive to professionals and colleagues who are in the helping game and who want to be supportive. And, and he's just been curious. His, the whole thing about his, his journey has been informed by his curiosity to understand what it is these individuals and organizations as well need. And then very importantly, what is it that would make them, these individuals and organizations, introduce and maintain the changes in their practice to make them more effective as helpers. And the second bit then was just that courage that he had to come on the podcast and to invite us to take him to a really uncomfortable, not that uncomfortable, but to, for me to be the client and to be uh, someone who really didn't want him to be around me as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a client and just had that willingness to take that, to go to that difficult situation. And then how he models the spirit of motivation and the compassion, but also the way he described the, the way he man he manifests what he later identified as what's called purposefulness and good authority in getting someone to recognize I have a responsibility as a social worker to do certain things, and it's how he holds those two spaces between being an authority and being a carer and helper, and uh, how he how he manifests that in the way he speaks to the to the the dad in this conversation. Yeah, this is a, another episode where we 
we introduced or included a, a role play based on suggestions and listener feedback. We've, we've had a lot of encouragement to, to do, to include more of those kind of practical bits and, and even role plays when applicable. So this was one of those episodes where we had an opportunity to do that. And you're right, uh, you know, Donald really showed a lot of courage in doing that. And, and, you know, one of the takeaways for me from the role play was just thinking about situations where the urgency is really quite high. And we've, we've explored those scenarios or situations in other episodes. And, and here is one in the context of uh, children that are, you know, in danger, uh, children that are hurt. And, you know, perhaps it's, it's some of the most, uh, some of the situations where the urgency is at its highest, not to mention the conversation itself involving really heightened emotions and, and you playing the role of, of a, of a child's father who is, has um, sort of sparked an investigation. Uh, we got to witness or, or listen to Donald using MI principles and skills in, in that particular clinical uh, context. And, you know, the other thing for me, I, I, I always appreciate it maybe a bit more of an intellectual exploration, but you know, what are the boundaries of MI? When is something MI and when, when is it not MI? What defines that? And, uh, you know, we, we had a bit of discussion about that. So we got, we got into a lot of practical bits and, um, and some other kind of uh, more, more sort of maybe intellectual ideas exploring MI in this context. Mm. So we, we hope you, uh, you enjoy it. And as always, keep in touch with us to give us ideas and feedback on, on what you heard. Donald, welcome to the podcast. We're uh, really excited to be speaking with you today. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. Great. And so we always get started uh, finding out a little bit from our guests about their background, what they do, and also what we like to call the early MI story. So how you came to first learn about motivational interviewing. Uh, so I'm a, a, a professor doing child and family social work at Cardiff University. But my background is I was a child and family social worker through, through the 90s, really. Um, and since then, I've been an academic. Um, and uh, as a practitioner, I found myself working with a lot of parents who use and misuse drugs and alcohol and found it difficult to know how to work with them. And the first study uh, I got funded um, uh, was really looking at the extent of drug and alcohol issues in social work caseloads in, in England and found a very large proportion of cases involved drugs and alcohol. They had, broadly speaking, quite poor outcomes. And social workers really struggled. They often felt very stuck, didn't know how to work with them. So, so I came to MI because... That study made me think, I don't ever want to do a study where I just describe a problem again. I want to try to be part of the solution. So the issue is, how could you help social workers to work better with the drug and alcohol problems? Often they were saying, well, you know, I can't really engage this person. There's loads of denial and minimization. Uh, so I'm just kind of waiting for something to go wrong. So I looked at the substance misuse literature, um, and I was struck by the evidence base for motivational interviewing, but even more... I was struck by the values and uh, principles of it, which I thought were really compatible with social work. And also the understanding of, of resistance, as, as it was called then, the, the sense that that's something that is often an understandable response to the situation you're in, which is very applicable to sort of child protection situations, and also something that could be increased or reduced by the way you talk to people. So from there, I, I did my first study of MI, and I've been doing studies of MI on and off for 15, 20 
a long time, a longer than I care to, to remember, trying to understand. And that then takes me into broader issues of, you know, what is good practice? What difference does it make? And how can you change people's practice? Because my initial studies of training, along with other people's studies of training, have found sort of limited initial impact. So how can you influence practice? So it's a long answer to a short question. <laughs> yeah, because it, it, it sounds like it's driving you as as an, an individual, first of all, as a social worker, and then as an academic and researcher, is that your desire is to be helpful. It's not just enough to know something. Mm. You want you want to help make a difference. Yes. And in that desire to make a difference around drugs and alcohol and the impact it has on people's experiences as, as in families and then social workers' relationships with those families, mm. is that what can we do that will will help families in that situation? And you were drawn to motivational viewing and you've been researching that ever since. And yeah. I just wondering, what, what did you discover, Donald, that that made you continue to want to be part of this or to discover more about it and that you want now to share with social workers in this generation? Yeah. I, well, one of the things I think I, I concluded early on was that there's not much difference between drugs and alcohol and other issues. So the behavior, a wide, social workers work with a whole wide range of behavior issues, whether it's sort of uh, neglect of a child or mental health issues or all sorts of things. And an awful lot of them involve issues of, of risk, issues of ambivalence and difficulty changing, etc. So I, I, I fairly early concluded uh, domestic abuse is another big one that social workers deal with. I felt the principles of MI could be applied to working with a very, very wide range, the majority of things that social workers uh, work with. So so that was the first thing. What have I learned in the studies? Uh, change is very difficult <laughs> or can be very difficult. So you've got sort of two sets of change I'm, I'm interested in. One is how do you help people to change? But the change that I think can, so parents particularly, but also young people we work with, the other, though, is often about how services can change the practice within within the service. And I've seen spectacular examples of really, really great practice. But it's all, I've also seen how difficult it can be to, to change practice. Not least because people are already doing their best in difficult circumstances. So even if their best may not be the best thing for parents, it's often something they've developed for good reasons. So you do need to understand why practitioners are doing what they're doing and how you can work with it. And I guess initially I was hopeful that, that training would make a big impact. In fact, I remember trying to convince uh, local authorities the difference training could make. Um, and I'd say even fairly intensive training programs can have limited impact. They do have impact. They're important for various reasons. But you need more than training. You need to create a system that um, supports and reinforces positive uh, practice and can also identify where practice is not so good and provide feedback. So you need things as well as training. You, you need some inspirational sense of what practice should be. You need observations of practice. I always use the example of my kids learning piano. You wouldn't expect them to learn the piano and then go and sit and talk to their piano teacher. The piano teacher actually watches them practice and gives them feedback. And it, it, it's a surprising thing in social work is we actually have the first model for a lot of what we do. So people go and practice in families' homes and then they come and talk about it to a supervisor who very often doesn't actually see what the practice is. So we need to, to break that down and provide feedback, coaching, supervision that supports practice. Um, I, know, I don't know how helpful that is, but uh, it is 
I, I guess also I began to, sorry, you triggered me, but this, you know, I've spent 20 years looking at this, so I feel I've got quite a lot to say. The other thing I, I became interested in is what difference do practice skills actually make to outcomes for families? Um, and while the picture is complicated, and I think for quite a lot of families, uh, perhaps social workers don't make much difference, nonetheless, there was evidence that MI skills, and particularly what you might call MI-related skills, actually did make a difference to outcomes for families. And, and that's, therefore, I think, strong evidence that we should be supporting practice that is more like that which we find in MI. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I, you know, it, was, it struck me as I was listening to you that you, you started with this a, a really challenging clinical context, and that is, at, at its sort of basic level, children in danger. And, and that is one of these sort of high urgency kinds of scenarios that we've explored in, in past episodes too, where it, it can be really hard for the practitioner to, to sort of adopt this sort of autonomy support and acceptance part of the spirit and, you know, these sorts of things when confronted with these really challenging contexts. So then you, you went from that challenging clinical context to a, a really challenging I guess, educational context, and that is training these services and systems that are, if it's anything like the U.S., are highly stressed, under-resourced, and then attempting to, to sort of enact some change system-wide. And I guess what I'm, I'm wondering, Donald, if, if and, and maybe, I don't know if you can pinpoint one thing or probably a, a few things over time, but what do you think helped you in terms of those systems, like, because for them to be open to doing something different, they really had to believe it was going to make a difference. Mm. And if it's counterintuitive to, to not, you know, I mean, it's not, I guess for, for them, it, it probably was, wasn't initially, initially counterintuitive to, it didn't make sense initially, I imagine for many of them to adopt a more accepting stance with parents who, are, you know, in the system. And so I guess what I'm wondering is what was it that do you think that sort of turned the tide and allowed you to help them or invited them to be more open to what your ideas were? Well, I don't know if we've turned the tide, but there's definitely been a big shift in, which is broader than motivational interviewing, um, within children's social care in England, Wales, I think across the UK which is really when I was a practitioner, there was no sense that you had a model for practice, that the local authority just, I think they just thought you got on with things. And there's been a, a major shift towards, well, we should be having a model or a framework for good practice. We should be able to say what good practice is, because if you can't say that, how can you know how, what you should train people, what sort of supervision to provide, uh, what sort of professional development you're looking at, et cetera. So there's been a general shift towards we need to have models of good practice. And therefore, there's a lot of interest now in motivational interviewing. It's now um, part of a framework of practice called family safeguarding, but it's also integrated into quite a lot of other approaches. Um, probably for similar reasons to the, the ones that I um, that attracted me to it, which are uh, it's got an evidence base, uh, a strong but, but a deep evidence, a rich evidence base, I would say, in, a, in other settings and a bit of an evidence base in children's social care, probably as good as anything has. Um, and then the values and, and, and the th I suppose there's three things, the values and the theor theoretical sort of orientation of things that can fit quite well with um, MI. 
but you're absolutely right. They're, these are difficult issues. It's not straightforward um, to to sort of change practice. Um, there's all sorts of good reasons why people don't necessarily want to change immediately. Yeah. Yeah, and what strikes me is that is so much of the parallel of what you're describing. It's almost like like recognizing the services are the corporate parent. They are responsible for the social workers who then go out and work with our within the community to with the actual parents and children. Yeah. And there are parallels between first of all, an awful lot of us as social workers aren't really quite sure what being a good social worker actually means in this context. Mm. What are what what's what's the evidence? What is it we're trying to be so that we can get on and not only so that we can that other people can not so much judge us but measure and support us to become the best version. Mm. In the same way as we're going out to try and teach people and individuals how to be good parents, that there needs to be some sort of explanation about what is it we 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 think is good enough, and yeah. this is where you currently are, and this is how we're trying to support you become different. But the reluctance and the frustration and the and the resistance that perhaps many of us as social workers will recognise that we experience from Invercom as our clients mm. is manifest in your relationship with them as social workers and as agencies that. Mm. The corporate parent doesn't like us having a look at itself, at its practices, and it, and how it takes care of people. And I'm just wondering, how are you helping them change that mindset? Because I guess that's a real risk for them too. Yeah, I think it's. I suppose I would think more that they have competing pressures and motivations going on, which creates an ambivalence about what should be in good practice. So on the one hand, you have you know, most people come into social work to help people. I think that is still a, a strong motivation to, to make a positive difference in people's lives that really permeates the whole organization. So when you talk to directors of children's services, they, most of them, uh, actually want to make a positive difference to kids and families. On the other hand, you have a situation where when a, when a child dies, there's a media frenzy, there's inspection regimes, there's a lot of focus on risk, there's a there's a sense of don't get it wrong, you've got to be assertive, you've got to be confront parents. Uh, this idea is like disguised compliance, which is the idea. It's, it's a rather, it's a very unfortunate term, but it's the idea that people will be pretending to go along with you, but actually they're abusing their kids. And, and, and the sense of social worker shouldn't have the wool pulled over their eyes. So you've got all those. And I guess that th- this is the, 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 the heart of the problem is that you have a, the care and control uh, elements uh, manifested at a sort of structural level, which each social worker then don't have to work through. Um, and that's why I guess, it, or part of the reason why it's, well, there's a debate. In fact, even in those of us who wrote the, the book, David Wilkins, Charlotte Whitaker, and, and myself, you know, is MI a sort of technique or a set of techniques for helping people around behavior change, which you can use in bits of social work? Uh, for instance, if you're talking to someone about domestic abuse or uh, alcohol misuse or whatever? Or is it more a sort of philosophy or the uh, so-called spirit of, of MI? And would that be consistent with um, child protection practice? I, I think I tend more towards the latter. I think it's kind of consistent with fundamental social work principles and that you can combine the care and control elements uh, in a way that is consistent with MI principles and you can use many of the practices of MI but perhaps it wouldn't be MI, more like MI-inspired practice or something like that. Yeah, but there's, well, there was a few things there. I mean, I guess it is one of those, uh, again, clinical contexts where 
the extent to which the other person, the client's autonomy is in fact limited. There, there are actual, um, uh, there is an actual element of the work that you're describing where it, it isn't the case that the client can simply do whatever they want to do. If they're in an addiction service, they could leave the service eventually and continue to, to use substances if that's what they choose. But there, there is an element of, of actual control. And, and within that, it, it, it provides a really interesting, I guess for me, it's a practical question too. Um, and I know you were, you were really emphasizing sort of the philosophy maybe behind MI and how it aligns with social work. But I, I'm curious about the, some of the practicalities of it also as you see. And, and what, what are some of the things that you found uh, helpful, practically speaking, when engaging with someone who, who, whose autonomy is in fact limited, mm-hmm. but, but sort of maintains the... Um, I guess, maintains that spirit of, of MI and, and sort of the, the values of social work. Yeah. Well, I, in fact, what one of the, so there's some more, more skills-based things which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, but, but one of the, the things that practitioners say they find most helpful is, is actually almost a theoretical reorientation. And that is from thinking you can make parents change to realizing that ultimately people make decisions about their own lives now, you may, there may be consequences. You may be directly responsible for those consequences. They may need to realize that if they stop going to the alcohol service, you, um, a consequence may be that you're going to start care proceedings and may have to remove children. I mean, very serious consequences. But there's a difference uh, between, you know, ensuring that people have a clear understanding of, of consequences of different forms of action while respect to, uh, of consequences of different things they may do while being respecting the, their right to make those decisions compared to thinking you can force people to change or make people to change. And so one of the things that I think the people who really, when I run MI training, the people who really get it, one of the first things that happens is, is the sense of a weight being lifted because the, the system is such that they have often feel pressurized to make parents change. And that is not what you can do. You can offer people opportunities. You can explain consequences. Ultimately, they, they have to um, make decisions. So that at a higher level, almost a philosophical perspective, I think, is, is a really important shift. And then there's uh, skills that are associated with that, but that I think are really helpful. Um, one of the most important is showing people you understand <laughs> their perspective. So I think quite a lot, we, we've done a lot of recordings of practice, I think over 800 now. One of the things that can quite often happen is an argument or almost an argument can happen because the parent is saying, you don't understand this, 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 this. And the social worker it can start to say, well, you don't understand. X, Y, Z will happen, or this is why I'm concerned. And that can often be short-circuited by using MI skills like um, reflections and summary statements uh, to show the person that you understand their point of view. You really understand it, not superficially, but you can understand why they're angry or agitated or feel you shouldn't be involved or how, even better, how they're feeling or what's important to them. Um, and then you can have a conversation about what, it's more likely then you can have a conversation about the things that you're bringing to it. So I suppose I see the, the skills as MI, which were developed for counseling and in counseling interviewing, as being ones we can use to have helpful dialogues with people and, and uh, more equal, respectful dialogues with people. Um, and and that's, that's why I think these skills are, are MI influence, but they're 
you could say they're not strictly MI because they're not necessarily about behavior change. They may be about um, having difficult conversations about, uh, you know, consequences of different things that happen. Mm. So it's 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 not, not not even so much MI light, but it's MI with with some dilution, a little bit of it's a, MI with a wee bit of water added to it, in the sense of we're not expecting your social workers to be counselors mm. because you have responsibilities and you have directions to follow, and uh, at the same time within that context, what we what we've learned from these interventions and particularly motivation and there's ways we can have conversations with people mm. that that seems to have a direct bearing on what they do next and mm. part of that is first of all you thinking about the way you're thinking mm. feeling and then what it is you're choosing to say in mm. response to them being angry or frustrated or happy or sad yeah. because it's your response to them being this way will influence what happens next yeah, and it's, it's almost like you're, it's, it's, it's familiar, that idea of for, for me to invite this person who's behaving in a certain way that we have concerns about, that the invitation is to be understood for seek to understand. Hmm. When you go to meet this person, you may not agree with what you understand they're doing. You may not agree with what it is you believe they're up to. Hmm. But what you can do is you can create an environment where you seek to understand why that makes sense for them. Yeah. Absolutely. And then begin to explore under what circumstances we have con- share your concerns and then explore under what circumstances would you be willing to change that yeah. so that we can leave you alone again? Exactly. Mm. Um, and I mean, one of the challenges uh, is uh, I think most of uh, us come into social work to sort of help people and we initially therefore want to help the parents and then we need to learn that sometimes actually we need to focus on the child and there's a vulnerable child here and we need to understand what's going on for them. And a lot of people talk about being child-focused. But if you're just child-focused, it can often become very punitive and unhelpful towards parents. Mm. I think really the heart of good practice and the difficult thing is you need to realize that there's a vulnerable child here who may be at risk and bad things may be happening for them. There's also almost invariably a vulnerable parent who's having difficulties. Um, and the challenge of good practice is, is to not just focus on one or the other, but to be able to focus on both. Uh, Obviously, sometimes you may have to prioritize the, the child situation, but really understanding what's going on for, for both uh, and bearing in mind that we have responsibilities to both those people or to all those people in order to try to help them. And, and I mean, that's the challenge, though. It makes it really complicated because you've got a balancing exercise. You, you, you can't be drawn into becoming like a counselor who's just there for the parent. You need to be thinking about the child. But if you just think about the child in, without thinking about the relationship with the parent and and others, um, that's problematic. You need to be able to hold both in mind. Yeah, I, I imagine that's a, a real challenge. Uh, in some circumstances, it would be quite natural, I imagine, for the, the social worker to to experience really strong emotions against a parent who's abusing their child. And and so there's that challenge. And, and even, and, and but I imagine there's the, the, the idea that, well, what helps the parent also helps the child. There's something that kind of makes sense intuitively there, but there's, there seems to be a, even a step further beyond that, which is the parent is in need and even worthy of respect and care yeah. and, and even, even the concepts of not unconditional positive regard, if we even yeah. want to tap into the Rogerian elements of it. And, and that, you know, it, it's probably easy to, to care for the child 
uh, you know, but, but really sort of devoting some genuine attention to helping this parent and to care for this parent is, is a, is a real challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, if we talk about the spirit of MI, I think the spirit of any way of helping people, there is, there's a kind of loving at the heart of it. I find the concept of agape quite useful, uh, which is a sort of Greek, Greek word for love. Um, and, and it's when there's different, the, the Greeks have far more words. I'm reliably informed for love. Uh, but the, 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 the agape it can be combined with any love. It can be combined with romantic love or love for your child or a friend. And it's the idea that you genuinely deeply want the best for that person. And I think that's sense of agape is at the heart of MI, but probably at the heart of any help, helping relationship. It's, it, and it's also when, when you, when you do it as a helper, you can kind of feel it. So, and you can feel it even, I, I can think of times when I was a practitioner and I took a child away, but I had tears in my eyes and really felt for the parent. And that's actually what I want, what I think all social workers should be like. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the society I want. Mm-hmm. One where the people making those difficult decisions have not cut themselves off from the emotions mm-hmm. that they're creating. But this diff- that's very difficult emotional work. Um, but I think that's that's sort of at the heart of what we should be aspiring to. Um, it, 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 I, this is slight. I don't know if this is where to go. But interestingly, um, one of my studies I did where I did a lot of follow up consultations with social workers. So I did MI training, and then they had I think four or five months of um, weekly uh, uh, coaching sessions. I was already teach them the skills we're going to do you know they'll come in off the training we'll do reflections and we'll do maybe listen to some practice etc what really surprised me is that the first several weeks it was like a tsunami of emotion that hit me and we weren't talking about the technical skills at all they were talking about things like i don't i really don't like this dad <laughs> or uh, I, I i'm scared when i go into this family i find it difficult to say difficult things and many of them were saying i i, I can't say these things in supervision because supervision uh, it gets written down, and if I said I, I hate the, the dad, for instance, that that would be considered unprofessional. So we do need some way of helping social workers and other other people trying to help people to to process the emotions they they're going through because because it's emotional work. If, if if it's nothing else, it's certainly emotional work. Mm. So again, it's about that. How do we create the environment where what it is we're trying to create, or the, the individual we're trying to help become? Who's helping us be that? Yeah, you know, if I'm going to if I'm going to be a parent who tolerates my child's tantrums, who's helping me tolerate my emotions or the emotions of the parents that I'm working with, and and to and to recognise that it's not a coincidence that that you're in a helping in a helping game, and more specifically, you're you're probably more attuned to that this language called emotion, Mm. and it's about how do we help you learn to recognise the sound of that language. And then, very importantly, how do you understand it without becoming it? So that you, yeah. you, what's it like for you to be around such angry people all day? Mm. And what's yeah. the consequence for you at an emotional level? Yeah, containing so much anger, or sadness, or loss, or fear—they're yeah, like yeah. really difficult, uncomfortable human emotions. And it sounds like what you're 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 hoping for and you're encouraging is that the service that looks after the community. Is itself being looked after? Yeah. That it models good care? Absolutely. And yet, 
any social worker listening to this will 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 laugh hollowly at how far that is from the realities of practice. So um, I've, I've just finished supervising a really good uh, piece of work by Lucy Treby for her doctorate, where she was looking at supervision and, and then practice, and and she found several interesting things. But one of them was that a lot of practice was really about surveillance, so going and checking up on families. There wasn't all this emotional stuff we're talking about very much. There was a bit. And then when she looked at supervision, it was like surveillance of the worker. It was, have you done this? Have you done that? And the social worker said, well, I did this, 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 this. So if you provide surveillance as your form of support for social workers, you will get a sort of practice that is surveillance. So how can we look after workers, provide nurturing, caring environments that then help them to provide the nurturing care and also challenge that families need? Um, uh, so I mean, it's, it's a tough, tough tough nut to crack and it's certainly not cracked yet but I, th- I think at least that's the the vision that, that i i and many others try to aspire towards um one of the things that uh, this might be a good time to to start to explore is um ahead of today's conversation uh we posted um uh, an invitation for for some ideas and questions on twitter and we it, it does seem like something that you've perhaps addressed a bit, but maybe we can, we can sort of specifically target this one question. So it came from Melinda Holman, past, uh, past guest on our uh, podcast, who asks, in essence, um, can, can social workers selectively use MI? Is that something that's uh, possible? Uh, is that something that you'd recommend? There, there was also a comment uh, in response to that, uh, saying that, that in, their, in their ideas that it wasn't something you'd sort of turn on or off it since it is a way of being with someone it is it is just sort of part of your conversation so what's your what are your thoughts about that the idea of selective use of mi so i think i think you can use mi selectively i think you could say uh you know i i uh, i'm learning the skills to use with certain sorts of behavioral issues but i think it then begs the question well, what, what are you doing the rest of the time and what are the theories, principles, practices that guide your work the rest of the time? Um, and I suppose the more I've looked at what good practice might be, the more I've researched it, the more I've thought, even when you've got very difficult news to impart or, or difficult consequences to explain, I, I, so even in the most difficult circumstances, I think you can you can use the principles of MI. So what, one of those is, you know, people have got, um, decisions to make about their own lives and about their behavior and, and we should be supporting their autonomy as much as possible and that requires a respectful sort of practice where we try to understand their situation um, and help them almost take charge of their lives as much as they can. Um, I, I almost don't see why you wouldn't use that in every circumstance. But, I'm, so, but I, I guess we also get into a thing here of which people who are new particularly people who are new to MI will often ask, which is, you know, how do you compare MI to systemic therapy or solution-focused therapy, et cetera? I mean, honestly, I think they've got far more in common than they are different. Mm -hmm. What I think has happened is various groups of people have thought deeply about what helps people, and then they've invented languages for uh, producing that and maybe researching that. But, But because what helps people will obviously have a lot in common or, or most of the main approaches have a lot in common. I mean, crude behaviorism is slightly different, but almost every kind of counseling type approach, I just think has much more in common than it has different. It, it's always going to be respectful. It's always going to be empathic. I think that we don't talk about it enough. It's always about a kind of loving uh, 
relationship. And, and so why would you not try to apply those into the more difficult places? Um, so for me, I, I think the, the spirit and principle apply you know, really across the board. Um, but I think it is legitimate to say, I'm actually going to use it as a particular technique if that's uh, – I can't say that's wrong. It's better than not using it. Mm. But I, I would say you could go further. Mm. Yeah, that's very powerful. That just that reminder that, or invitation to consider that what motivation to view is, is a description of what works? What systemic therapy is, is a description of what works? What mm. CBT is a description of what works? There's a thing called it works, mm. and there's these different languages explaining it. And mm. what this is is an invitation to go, this is what, this language sounds like, and this mm. is how you might speak in this language when you're working with families and children. Mm. Um, and try it when you're working with people who take drugs. Try it with people who are, mm. you know, maybe eating too much or that you want to help them become a great footballer because what this is is a language of being helpful. Mm. And part of what you're exploring is what helps an individual practitioner enter into that journey of discovery and learning and then very importantly what makes them want to stay to become good at it mm. you know it's one thing they learn no I, and i know this i know i well i've heard this thing about empathy and all of a sudden they can re- reference empathy but what we're experiencing is how to recognize what empathy is and experience mm. it and then how to translate the experience into a reflection that mm. that acknowledges this other person's experience so that yeah. they feel helped by it yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I'm just wondering, you know, you know, given how how deep in your heart this sounds like it is for you, Donald, I'm just wondering, you know, what is it you're experiencing that, that is that that is making people want to do more of that and what could some of our listeners do if they were interested in de- yeah. deepening and growing as practitioners, what what support or advice would you offer? So I suppose um people hear something about MI that they like the sound of, they, 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 the, the empathic orientation, the, the strength-based uh, uh, principles or the um, the understanding of resistance and, and suddenly a, a penny drops. But what really makes a difference is then what happens next. So you can run your training course and, and you can have people go, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. What makes a difference about whether someone then goes on to really you know, become good, at, uh, dedicate themselves to becoming good at MI is where is really when they try it out. Um, so if they if they try it out, then I find they come back and very often, not always, but very often, report, "Wow, that conversation went really differently. It was a different quality of conversation. I got more satisfaction from it." Often they report, "I felt less stressed because instead of trying to force someone to change, they started, you know, talking about change themselves." So it's that sense of, uh, in some ways, the thing training needs to do is inspire people to try it out. Mm-hmm. Then trying it out motivates people. And then the thing that's difficult is to keep supporting them to keep trying it out. There was a lovely thing at the end of, I think, one of the previous editions of, of the, the um, Miller and Rolnick book on MI, which might be the first edition, um, that said, we, nobody taught us MI. Mm-hmm. Um, we learned was that... Uh, uh, change talk was a green light and resistance talk was a red light. And if we listened very carefully to, to clients or the people we were working with, they taught us how to do MI because they're constantly giving us feedback in terms of 
what you might call resistance or change talk. I know we, we use different terminology these days, but but those two basic ideas. And I think that's really helpful. If, if you can empower people to think, well, if I listen very carefully and reflect on what's happening in my meetings with people, then the parents and children I work with will teach me how to be better. Um, and then if you've got that sen- sensitivity, you almost don't need to worry about some of the technical detail. You know, was this a simpler or complex reflection? Who cares? Did it help the person feel understood? And how would you know because of they, what they say to you? So it's, it, I think it can be really liberating for people to realize actually it's not, you know, it's not Professor Forrester in a training course who teaches me MI. He can perhaps inspire me. The people who teach me MI are the people I work with. And what I need to learn is how to really listen mm. to what they're saying back to me. Mm. Yeah, because it, it, it is quite natural to get really inwardly focused, I suppose, especially if you're first learning something and, you know, mm. uh, you know, how do I, you know, how do I make a complex reflection at, right now? And, oh, no, that was a closed question. It should have been open and we can get really in our heads about it. But it, if learners, whether it's, you know, early learners or more advanced learners, that if, if we can from time to time kind of get outside of ourselves and just stay attuned to how our clients are responding to us, that that could be a really useful um, kind of real time trainer in a, in a sense, uh, a real time teacher. Um, I wanted to, there, we had another question from another past guest of ours, uh, Stan Steindl, who asked, well, it was more of a, a statement or an invitation. One thing I've often thought about is the three ways MI might be used with parents, with kids and teaching the principles and skills of MI to parents to help in their conversations with their kids. I'd be interested to hear thoughts on this. So thoughts on that, Donald. Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess one of the chapters we struggled with a bit more in the book was using MI with children, young people. Um, so there's quite a lot of evidence that with uh, adolescents, teenagers, it can be really, really helpful way of working. But the younger you go, the less sure we were about that because the younger the child, the less a non-directive approach may be helpful. They can become confused and not really know what you're trying to say to them. Um, I certainly think with sort of teenagers, adolescents, it it can be an extremely useful way of working. Um, We've, uh, as part of the training, we have worked with teams who work primarily with children and and they've developed all sorts of creative ways of applying the principles of MI to work with even younger children. Um, And so that can be trying to to apply into, I don't know, uh, there's someone who did... um, well, I suppose it was a bit like value, the values cards we use with adults. They have pictures of things that were important in their life and they got the child to talk about um, some of those. But I guess there's also an issue of uh, what one of the principles of MI is people have some uh, responsibility and control over their behavior. And again, the younger you go, the less it is reasonable to expect that. So I think there's some, some issues there. The thing about MI as a parent, uh, I've never tried teaching MI to parents or even suggested that others do it. But like many who have encountered MI, I've, I've tried to use it with my own kids. And it, summary statements and reflections can be really useful, even with very, in fact, maybe even particularly with very young kids, um, giving them a sense of, you know, you, you're really upset. Uh, or so this morning, uh, I, one of our youngest was um, upset because for various reasons, he had to brush his teeth before he got dressed for school. 
offering that back to him was helpful. So he un- so he's, he stopped crying because he knew that I understood why he was crying, but he still had to do what I said. Um, so I, I think there's, there's potential, and it would be really interesting to explore that. And presumably some people have. I, I, I'm just not aware of it. Yeah, and, and I guess for an awful lot of people, that idea of introducing this awareness, these skills into these close, loving relationships at home you know, I know that uh, Steve Ronick at one of our conferences is the, the hardest place for him to be motivated mm. is through his own front door. Yeah. Because yeah. he's this close to the people that, and, you know, there's rules and responsibilities and there's rules, but that doesn't stop the effort. And it sounds like part of what you're describing, and I know that as a dad myself, that how I speak to my kids now. 25 years after I started learning motivation is very different mm. from how I would have spoken without it. Mm. Yeah. And that that is about, uh, I guess, the manifestation of my desire to be loving towards my kids. Mm. And it sounds like that when you were speaking to your son this morning, you were thinking about your son and his experience, knowing that, son, you're going to have to do this. But you, you said that without having to say it in those terms. Mm. And that he was part of that conversation. He was a child that was seen, that was heard, that his emotions were recognized. And once the emotion was recognized, there's a back that, that, that the power of the, the, the container of, of the, of the emotional experience, which was, I know you're upset. I know mm-hmm. you're upset because this, this doesn't suit you. And that, and it's almost like in that recognition that the emotion can then move and then the individual mm-hmm. can respond differently with, with a new emotion arising in them. And, and it's, again, it's back to what you were describing earlier on. It's is that this is you endeavoring to be loving. Mm with the most important people in your life. Mm. And the, what we're exploring is that, that being a help, helping professional is, is an, a version of that to the wider society. How can we be good parents mm. to everybody we meet? Yeah. So what, if, what, if we, what if we thought about the needs of everybody, including ourselves, which is important mm. in the conversations we're having? And what MI does is say, what if you thought, what if when you listen to you, you you listened in these way, in this way, mm. and one of you, when you responded, you thought about framing your language to take this into account, mm. and not just between nine and five, and mm. not just when you're on duty, but just again, it's back to the Rogerian idea of being with people, and Bill's idea of MI's more than a counseling style, it's a way of being with people that it's mm. getting to a place where my life's actually easier as a mm. person when I think like this and talk to people like this because I take less stuff personally. Because mm-hmm. I'm learning to listen to other people's perspectives without mm-hmm. it being a competition. And um, and it sounds like that idea of how do we help parents. I know that I've, I've worked with some groups where we talk about adults who, at the criminal justice groups, where the children are getting into trouble, but the service is using support. So I've gone along and talked about MI. So I'm not teaching them as a, a, a not pure MI, but we're talking about mm-hmm. that essence of why are they doing that? and what is what are they trying to tell us by that behaviour? Mm. And what if you notice that to them? Mm. And here are some ways you could frame that language and mm. and then very important, notice what's it like for you to be around an angry teenager? Mm. And how do you respond to that and what other choices do you have? So um again it's it, it, it's an interesting question from Stan and about how do we help kick this constant style and 
take what's wonderful about it and translate it into a language that isn't a t- an adult being a counselor to their child, but you know, a yeah. really loving, kind adult, loving, kind yeah. parent to their son, their daughter, their partner, their friend, the person mm. at the bus stop, um, without having to be making an effort. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I certainly haven't cracked that. And my wife will sometimes say, you know, you're using that voice again or whatever. <laughs> and I'm trying to, to, to be like that. But it is about trying to create loving relationships by which I mean, we, when we genuinely want the best for each other and, and um, try to understand each other's points of view across the board. And it has some links with the idea of mentalization, which is that children learn about their own feelings and their own understanding of themselves in large part because of the way in which parents reflect it to them. So even with a quite a young baby or, or well, maybe not quite a young baby, but you, you can be communicating to them that you understand they're upset or, or, or whatever. And that helps them to understand that they're, maybe they're hungry or uh, what's going on for them. So there's huge potential to use in those sorts of situations. So I've not done much myself. Mm. Yeah, really. Uh, so we, we certainly thank uh, Mindy and Stan and, and everyone who's um, contributed to discussions on social media. I, I was thinking uh, if it's all right with you guys, we could maybe transition to our uh, a, a role play or a demonstration of, of what uh, am I might sound and feel like in, in, a, in a really complicated situation. We, we sort of pre-prepared this a bit uh, ahead of time. And um, uh, Glenn, you're, you're going to play the role of a, of a dad who has um, had, a, had a tough time and, and has uh, you and, and your family has come to the attention of, of the local uh, Child Protective Service. And, um, and so we're going to hear what it sounds like and debrief it a little bit so, so we can uh, kind of explore this more in depth. Uh, any more, uh, any other kind of setup that you'd like to offer here before we get started with the role play? Yeah, so I think that the scenario is set up deliberately not to be a kind of counseling type situation. It's about an allegation. Uh, so this, this two five-year-old girls who are twins, one's not got into school, the other said there was a big argument last night and daddy broke Chen's arm. So as the allocated social worker, I obviously need to go around and find out what's happening. Um, uh, this isn't we could have chosen a lighter sort of uh, t- topic on the spectrum of, of discussion, but this, I hope, will give us an opportunity to explore some of the issues we've talked about, which is can you use MI principles or skills in a very different sort of situation where really you're using authority uh, in order to ensure a child is assessed. I guess that's the context. And I think we're doing it in, around the house that I've knocked on the door and got in. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I guess I'm ready when you are. Okay. Hello. Hi, uh, Dave. Thanks for letting me in. I've come round because I wanted to talk about uh, some concerns about Jen and here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Man, about listen, listen. Don't boop. Is that is that the other one? Is that that we Sally Sandy at school? She does this all the time. I don't, I listen, everything's groovy. Everything's groovy. No, no fears, worries here. It's great that you. It's, but I listen. She's six. She mixes things up. Yeah. So from your perspective, there's nothing to worry about. Uh, no. But you can understand why I'm here by the sound of it. Well, yeah. You know, if that was true, thank goodness. Be, yeah. but, it's, but it's a load of nonsense from your perspective. Yeah. I, I don't even know what she's told you. The fact that you're here is mad. Yeah. Well, that's that's what I wanted to say is that um, whenever we have concerns about a family, the first thing I like to do if I can is, is talk to the parents so that you can hear what we've been told. Mm. 
and you can give us your side of things. No problem. No problem. That's great. Because so, listen, I, 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 I've, uh, I'm meeting some of my bodies down in the bookies later on, but listen, I've, I've, if we can get this cleared up quick, that'd be great. Well, that would be great. We'll see how long it takes. So, so what Sally said was that last night there was a, a big argument, a fight between you and your, your wife. And uh, during the fight, you, you pulled Jen's arm and, and she said that she thought you'd broken it. And so that's obviously, from our point of view, quite, quite a worrying thing. Um, we want to find out, I, I guess the first thing I want to find out is, is what you've got to say about that. But I, I also need to, to see Jen and check that she's okay. Look, there was a game of football on the TV. I support West Ham. She supports Arsenal. The youngster got in the way. It was nearly, it was at West Hammers running forward. And I just, you know, those kids do, they walk in front of the TV. I just reach across, pull her away, you know. So you didn't mean to, to hurt her. There was just, you no, know, she was lots of excitement. She wasn't even hurt once. It was just, she, she was upset that I was upset, you know. All right. And, and, and we went West Ham won. So that's why the wife's annoyed. Okay, so the the whole thing was so. Is it that you support different teams? One of his West Ham, one's Arsenal. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that caused some shouting. And well, only, only it only happens when it's and it's game. Crack! It's a bit of banter, you know. Yeah. It's just two football teams, and she comes from a long long line of Gunners, and you know, I'm I'm West Ham, and you know, it was just that we're doing well this season, and she doesn't like it, and um, and I'm just walking in front of the TV, and I just. Give her a wee yank to get her out of the way, and and you feel like Sally's just got the wrong end of the stick, or, or... S- Sally? No. Sally's her mommy's girl, right? You know, and in, she's you know at that age, yeah, you know that it's she's always going to. If mommy's upset, she's upset, okay. and that's her. Was mommy was upset? Arsenal lost. Yeah. So from your point of view, this is like storming a teacup, something about nothing. And But you can, I hope, understand why I'm here as a social worker, why we would have to come and talk to you about it. Uh, you know what? It's, it's a bit ridiculous that when West Ham beat Arsenal that I have to have a social worker around. Okay. You know, it's, 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 I know it's a big deal. You know, I know West Ham beat Arsenal is a big deal, but seriously, not that serious. No. So I, I guess the football score is, isn't why I'm around here. That I'm... I'm I'm around here because um, I'm a bit worried about Jen and want to check she's okay. Hmm. It's great to hear your side of things. Good. Jen's but one gone. of the things I one of the things I need to do as a social worker is I, I'll need to talk to Jen, find out how she is, um, and it may be that we need to if, if get get her seen medically if there are any issues. So I wanted to talk to you about whether that would be possible. Listen, Jen's grand, and um, she's she. She because she was upset, she didn't sleep that well last night. So she's up in her bed, she's sleeping, and you know if there's anything, what I can do is when she gets up this afternoon, I'll if you want, I'll take her into the doctor and let the doctor have a look at her, and we can get on with it. Okay. Uh, well, if she's asleep, I guess uh, what I'm going to say may not be what you want to hear, but I, I feel I need to see her really now, that this isn't something that could wait till this afternoon. Oh, man, I don't want to go upstairs and wake her up. She's only a baby. Yeah, she is only young. And obviously the last thing you want to do is wake her up mm. if she's just been put down. Mm. Um, but I suppose, it, would it be okay if I explain from my perspective uh, how I see things? Which is, um, you've told me how things were last night. We've got uh, Kim saying some 
kind of different things, which would lead me to be quite worried. Um, I'm, what I hope is I can talk to Jen and we can sort it all out, but I, I don't feel I can um, just wait until later this afternoon. It's, it sounds too serious to me. So that's where well, I'm coming from. This doesn't suit you because you're busy. You know, you, it's, it's like you don't want to come back because you have other things to do. It's, uh, no, it's not, it's, uh, it's not that I'm busy. I've, I've stopped everything else to come and have a look at this. It's because um, at the moment I've got I've got your what you've said about last night, and then I've got what Kim, uh, what Sally has said about last night, and um, I'm, that just leads me to be a bit worried about Jen. So Listen, I, I'm, I'm just, trying to be as uh, be as polite as I can. I let you into my house. I've told you what's going on, and now you want to go and hook around, and my family you want to poke your nose into our business. It's, this is starting to annoy me. Yeah, so you're annoyed because you know I'm coming here poking around and, and making things difficult for you when you want to go off and see your, your mate down there. Listen, if you want to find families with problems going up the street, the place is full yeah. of them. Yeah. Uh, I guess we're getting to a difficult situation here because I can see that you really, really don't want me to, to disturb Jen right now. Mm. I am so worried about her that I feel I really need to see her. So I, I, I guess I need to explain what your options are here. So... You can, you could, what I hope is you'll let me see Jen and we can try to sort this out. If you really feel I can't wake up Jen and go and talk to her, um, I'll need to leave. It's your house. That's your call. But I'm so worried that I would contact the police about this um, because, the, because they have rights. Well, exactly. It's the last thing I want to do. I, what I hope is we can sort this out without that. Oh. But I guess we're in a situation where... Really, my wonder, social workers have a bad name. If you're going, if I don't get what I want, I'm going to get the police. Yeah, I can completely understand. The last thing you would want is the police to come around here um, and disrupt things. When, from your point of view, Jen's just having a sleep upstairs and is fine. Um, the difficulty for me is, unless I talk to her, I can't check out what the situation. We can is. talk to her later on. I. Yeah, so from your point of view, I can wait. But from my point of view, it's getting on today already. We're nearly at midday. By the time we wait for a while, we may, she may not be able to see a doctor. Um, I also want to try to sort these things out before Sally has to come home from school because I, I want to make sure she's going to be okay after, she's, after what she's told us. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why, for me, I need to see her now. You've, you've already decided that I'm wrong. You've already decided that I've I've done something bad. You've all, you're all all you're saying is I need to make sure that my children are safe because I yeah. think you're dangerous. Um, I haven't decided at all. What I've uh, and I really appreciate you coming in here, letting me come in here, talking to me, explaining your side of things. What what I have decided before I came in the door is that I'm quite worried from what I've heard about about Jen and that I need to see her to make sure she's okay. And I guess that means my worry about that leaves you having only a couple of options. Uh, what I hope is that you and me can talk it through and arrange that I can see Chan. But I have to be honest with you. I always said I'd be honest with you. If you say no, which is your right, I'm so worried that I would go and, and ask the police and see if they could come around with me to see her. So I guess it leaves you with, without many options, but, but those are your options. I can, I can go now and do that. What I hope is you and me can talk this through, and I can see Jen. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just between a rock and a hard place, now. It's, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm in got... no one situation here. I can't, I can't protect my kids from you. 
because if I do tell you to leave, you're just going to get, get the feds and come back and do what you want anyway. Yeah, you are in a difficult situation where you're, and I just have to be honest about what your options are, that they're pretty limited. Um, what I hope is we can we can find ways of talking through this and sorting it out, me checking Jen's okay, that aren't too bad for you, but, but you are in a difficult position. I, I guess you've got a tough decision to make or tough limited decision to make. Wow. Oh, yeah. All right, guys. Thanks for, uh, for doing that. We'll catch our breaths. <laughs> pretty intense conversations. You know, even just as a role play, there, there's a tension that's palpable. It, was a, it felt a great rope. Glenn felt very realistic. I've been in conversations like that many times and it, he felt very realistic. Though I, I, guess, I guess what might happen is in, in reality, if we were sitting there, he, you know, there might be shouting and uh, sort of threatening behavior. It's not uncommon. But um, it, it's, it is a sort of difficult conversation one has quite yeah. often, I guess. And, I, and for me, the reason why I, I stopped at that point was because I could feel myself at a crossroads. Hmm. I could feel myself on one side being really quite frightened about what was going to happen next mm. if my daughter was upstairs with an injured arm mm. and what the consequence of that was going to be for me. The other side of that was to, I was about to blow a fuse. Mm. I was getting that angry. yeah. And I think the two things were interrelated, that I was in a, a really, really powerful bind Yep. And and what you were saying was, look, we're gonna we're gonna do this one way or another. But what was significant was that it was done being done in a really without you shouting at me, without you trying I felt your power without you having to raise your voice. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure how much I, I used my skills in that, but because the options were very limited and, and it was a short role play. We could have added in lots of other sort of explanations about what was going on. Sometimes when we do the role play, there's a whole explanation about what happened the previous night and you have to try to show an understanding of that. But I suppose the difference between what, or what I think the difference is between what I was trying to do and what I think I, I often did as a worker and I've certainly seen social workers do is I think social workers sometimes say, well, you, you've got to do it. Um, mm. and, and actually, I, I just wanted to explain what the options are and try to show an understanding to the person that, for Dave, I think it was, that, you know, it's a difficult situation to be in. I should have used, I think, an extra summary about how difficult he was finding it and how he was painted into a corner. But it is the sort of dynamic, it's almost the central dynamic in child protection is how can you work with someone in such in a respectful way in such difficult conversations. Mm. Yeah, one thing that struck me very early on, which is something that I think can be a great challenge for people in a lot of different contexts, is this idea of, of, using reflections and in particular, you know, adhering to the, that acceptance part of, of the MI spirit is, is the, the risk perhaps in agreeing with the other person's perspective or endorsing a choice that they want to make or a position that they have. And, you know, very early on, um, uh, Donald, you said, this is a load of nonsense from your perspective as a reflection. And it really struck me as, as an example of you weren't, you weren't agreeing with him saying, you're right. I have no reason to be here. <laughs> it was a reflection of what his perspective was. And, and I thought it was, it was a really wonderful way at the start, at this really critical part of, of the encounter. But, but it, it was something that you maintained throughout. You, as the emotions got heightened and as Glenn playing the role of Dave got more and more frustrated and scared and angry, 
you, you sort of kept striking this balance of here are your options. I have a job to do. I have these concerns and your concerns are also valid. Uh, and, and that, to me, that, that was something that really stood out. Well, I'm, I'm glad about that. And I, and I guess that the difficulty you have as a social worker is uh, there's a child in this case uh, in another room and that child may well just be asleep because they've had a rough night or they may have a slight bruise or they may have a, a, a massive, a serious, they may be at death's door. I mean, and so you're trying to be respectful to the parent while having to keep open a very wide range of possibilities, which includes some pretty serious ones. Um, so it, it's a, it's a tough conversation to have. Um, but yeah, that you, that you as a social worker, you don't actually have a choice. You, you do have to see this child, whether yeah. it's now or in an hour's time. Yeah. But that, that has to be done. And, and what you were doing in the conversation with me was negotiating with me when I would be more willing to do that, whether I, you needed the force of the law behind you for me to become willing or yeah. whether it would be simply a case of, look, let me go up the stairs now. Let's have a quick chat. If everything's rose in the garden, I'm away. Hmm. But And at some level, it's also recognizing my reluctance, I guess I, from a social worker's or a practitioner's perspective, my reluctance to let you do that may be also adding to the concern where that might for someone who's who isn't containing it so well, may mm. then get caught up in the emotion that the the father is presenting with, and now now we start to react to each other. Mm. And what, what was lovely about what you were doing was that at no point did I suppose in the old terms you were meeting resistance with non-resistance. Mm. You were continuing to understand it while maintaining your position. Um, you you stood firm without trying to beat me, but. Um, there was clear guidance. This is what this is what needs to happen, and it's just a case of when we do that with your participation is mm. what we're here deciding. Um, yeah, and again, from for me as the dad, it was that in 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 this role play in my heart that the child had had an injured arm, mm. and I was doing what I could to say, look over there, yeah. and. You, you were willing to say, oh, I see what's over there and I'm still looking here. I'm still looking mm-hmm. and I'm still, I'm still interested. And you just narrowed the space between what we were talking about by looking at everything we talked about. We talked about Arsenal, talked about West Ham. You heard me, you understood it. You even joked a little bit about it. But it was still with, and this is what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just kept leading us to that place where there was nothing else to talk about about but this. Mm. And I got really frightened. Yeah. And it was skillfully done that you brought me to the place where the fear I was experiencing was real for me. And I now had a decision. Do I take the, take it now or take it later? Mm. But it, I knew there's no way out of this. And I suppose what you're trying to do as, as a practitioner is I, I talked about, you know, you've got, you, you've got the un, the child beyond the door and there's a spectrum of possible situations. What you're trying to do is talk to a parent so that the less serious end of that spectrum, they are probably going to say, okay, Mm. and uh, realize that with the more serious end of the spectrum, or with some parents who are very dug in, you're not going to change their view. So all you can do is try to 
you know, be clear, treat them respectfully, um, and um, hope that makes the difference. I, I, and so, I, you know, relating to what I um, was talking about uh, earlier, I don't know whether this is motivational interviewing. In fact, I don't think it is motivational interviewing, but I think it uses some of the skills of motivational interviewing. And in particular, it uses the principles, I think, of motivational interviewing, the principles that, you know, people have got uh, choices and decisions to make about their lives, that we should be treating them respectfully and with a kind of loving. I was, try- I was trying to love you. I don't know if you felt it, Clem, but, you yeah. know, I'm trying to, you know, genuinely want the best for you and realize you're in a difficult situation, mm. whatever the circumstances. So it's just a very small role play, I suppose, but it's trying to, to, mm. to reach for some of those bigger things. And I, I don't, know whether it's motivational interviewing or something else, but it's certainly emerged from my uh, long encounter with MI. Yeah. I guess the question arises for me is when, when did it become something other than motivational interviewing? And yeah, I know I've heard a lot of people talk about like MI as it's applied in correctional settings and while this isn't corrections, it's there's a similarity to it in that you as a social worker do yeah. have some authority and, and maybe, you know, and, and you know, there's different viewpoints on that, but some might say, well, once once you're exerting some kind of authority on the other person, then it becomes something else, even if it's in the context of you offering choices that, to the person. Yeah, yeah. You know, some some might say that the the kind of directiveness that you showed in particular as Glenn really was trying to brush this off as a you know a, a, a sporting rivalry gone a bit too far that you you reflected that a little bit but then eventually you just you were you just got a lot more persistent about yep got it and we still have the issue of of your daughter upstairs and and you know, and some might say that directiveness kind of starts to step outside the the, the sort of the tent pegs of MI. But I don't know. I it, it, it ultimately it may be one of those questions that you can have multiple answers for. To me, it felt very like the 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 that spirit or the philosophy that you had referenced earlier that seemed really clear throughout a lot of the skills that you were using. The reflections, you know, in particular, were quite uh, apparent. And, um, and, and you really were committed to presenting this as choice mm. while also acknowledging the reality. I mean, you even used the word limited, you know, mm. and, and you were, you were transparent about that. So mm. was it MI? Was it not MI? I guess we can. Uh, maybe, maybe we could invite about that. as people who are listening to this episode, whenever this happens to be, would be keen. What, what did you hear? What did you understand? What was that like for you? And if, and if you do want to leave a comment, you know, you could maybe do it on our Twitter handle at, at James Talk and, and just mm. uh, hashtag uh, MI and, and families, and mm. then we can capture this at some point in the future. But just what's what's your experience of this, yeah. and and what what arose for you? I'd, I'd love to hear from other people. It'd be really interesting. Um, in relation to, to one of the things you sort of said at the beginning, there said when when does it go beyond MI? What well, one of the things we developed is we we, we use the encoding interviews is we, we use the, the mighty codes, um, which are just sort of motivational interview, motivational interview treatment integrity codes of, of kind of core MI. But we also developed some other dimensions of practice, uh, in particular, to, to capture this sense of authority, we, we, through various focus groups, we developed three dimensions, uh, which were purposefulness, uh, focus on the child and clarity about concerns. And we operationalized them 
using MI principles. Um, and so we've coded a lot of the recordings using both the, the, the sort of core MI dimensions, but also these sort of three, the three things that correlate with one another, another and, and after a, using the expression coined by uh, an academic called Harry Ferguson, we, we call them good authority. But what's interesting is in terms of the, the study I've done looking at outcomes is the MI skills had some weak relationships with outcomes, but the, the good authority ones actually had stronger relationships with outcomes in the context of child protection. And I think that's because probably the most important thing when you're working with people is that they're clear about the purpose, that they know why you're there, and but, but not in a way that you're just telling them. So we operationalize that in a collaborative style. So there's a collaborative sense of shared purpose. You develop a collaborative focus on the child and collaborative clarity about concerns. And those seem to be crucially important parts of effectively working with people. Um, so, And what struck me about that is, without minimizing what what the, the situations that social workers find themselves in, it's almost like you're saying that the good authority is the very thing that happened with you and your son this morning, which was he had to brush his teeth. Hmm. And how you did that was significant about leading to that place. Hmm. That as a social worker, these people have to look after their children. They have mm. to let you have access. They they have to make decisions. Mm. But it's it's the way they go about this that is all been explored and negotiated in your trainings and in yeah. your mentoring. And it's going, there's different ways to get people to brush their teeth. Yeah. And there's also, a, we don't have time to discuss this, but the, the, so we've talked about really the heavy end, difficult interview, but there's another bunch of interviews which are pretty common in the recordings we've done where we can't really work out what the point of the interview is. Um, and my guess is the social worker, <laughs> yeah, the social worker is going around and checking up on people. Right. And actually, I think the concept of purposefulness and good authority can be really helpful there for, mm. for, for not just the social worker, but also the family to have a sense of this is why the social worker is here. You know, if, if I had a magic wand and could wish for one simple change to social work, it would be that, at the beginning of every interview, there was a negotiation about the agenda. So the social worker says, oh, I'm here and there's a couple of things I want to talk about. Is there anything you'd like to talk about? Or, you know, you can negotiate it in different ways, but some sense of this is what we're here to talk about. Because, you know, there's quite a lot of interviews where I couldn't really see what what, what the point was. And that's another thing that MI or or any other framework can provide is a sense of purpose. So that as a social worker, you know what you're doing, you know how you're trying to achieve things. You've got a way of thinking about what's going on. Um, so I think, yeah, MI is also very helpful in that respect. Well, we're uh, we're at a point in our conversation here where we're going to start winding down uh, after a really uh, a really thoughtful uh, discussion and, and role play there. Um, and we often ask our guests towards uh, towards the end of our discussions about anything that's on the horizon for you, anything that's caught your attention, something that you're working on, or you anticipate that you will begin to work on, whether it's a professional context or perhaps more personal one. Um, yeah, so well, there's, there's various things, but I, um, I'm working on another book, which really has arisen out of the MI one. And it's about uh, trying to frame social work as, as rights-based and often dealing with conflicting rights. Um, so in the role play, we actually saw it wasn't about counselling, it was about conflicting rights. In this case, the child's right to protection, but also the parent's right to uh, a considerable level of freedom about how they parent. Um, uh, so uh, I'm very 
And that's arisen from the sense that a lot of social work is not actually about helping, even though we talk about it a lot, and it's why I came into social work. Uh, it's often about balancing rights and trying to minimize state involvement in family life and how can we understand some of those dilemmas. Um, so that's kind of what I'm interested in. It's helped me rethink a lot of my preconceptions about social work. And also as part of that, something we haven't talked about is um, the difference between counseling and social work is the, is the social in the title. And how can we, and, and I suppose one of my reservations about MI is it can be overly individualistic. It can be down to the individual to change. Yeah. What about the context of poverty? What about racism? What about these broader factors? Um, how can we have a practice that is simultaneously helping individuals while also uh, changing their context or, or at least understanding those contexts more, more broadly? And I think a rights-based sort of lens can help provide a framework for thinking about that so that, that we don't become overly individualistic about this. And, and oh, there's many way, reasons I've come to this, but one was a role play I did with some students ages ago where there was a parent who had to have con- was going to have contact with their child and didn't have enough money for the bus fare and i i did a sort of classic mi style so i was i think i was using all the skills of mi fairly reasonably to get her to think about how she could use her money appropriately so that she had money left for contact uh, and the student quite rightly pointed out but isn't the issue that you should be giving her money because and she, and that's absolutely right so we need that a higher level critical view of uh Individual choice is, is important, but what are the social factors and what can we do to give people the positive resources they need to exercise freedom? Um, and that's where a sort of rights-based approach can be helpful. Wow. Okay. So we're going to have to come, get you back again in 18 months' time. Yeah. To, because, that, again, that sounds fascinating, not just from a social work perspective, but I, I guess then for us as MI practitioners to recognise, you know, what are the social circumstances of the individuals that we're working with and how do we take that into account in our thinking and that integrates it into our, our spirit in the approach yeah. and uh, the the responsibilities then we have as individuals to act on their behalf if that if, if that's necessary. So thank you uh, for that, Donald. And, and we all always ask our guests as well, if, and I'm sure there will be people out there who will be who will be interested to talk to you or ask you questions or engage with you with what you've shared or the books that you've written. If if people want to contact you in relation to what you've talked about here today, how can they do that? How, how can people reach you? Um, so they can email me. I think my work email's readily available. If you put Donald Forrester Cardiff University into Google, it comes up. Shall I spell it out as yes, well? Please. Yes, Okay. It's uh, Forrester D, that's F-O-R-R-E-S-T-E-R-D, at cardiff.ac.uk. And I'm very happy to hear from people by email. Or you can contact me on Twitter. I think it's at Donald4, F-O-R-R, all one word. And, uh, you know, if you've got any comments, thoughts, want to point out where I'm wrong or what I should do next, uh, I'm very, very happy to hear from anyone. Thank you. And we'll, we'll, we'll include out those details in the the podcast notes as well right brilliant great well donald we really really appreciate you joining us this is wonderful and uh, certainly given us a lot to think about uh in, in this really uh, challenging context that you've devoted your career to so uh so again thank you for joining us thank you it's really enjoyable brilliant thanks donald thank you Save. 
save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app get 16 ounce packs of flavorful angus 90 lean ground sirloin for 4.99 each with a digital coupon then buy two get two free on 12 packs of delicious coca-cola pepsi or 7-up all with your card Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.